Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. Joshua is the sixth book of your Bible. So if you don't know where it is, just start in Genesis and count to the, to the right six books and you'll be right there. We're going to finish our time in Joshua during the big story this morning. Joshua chapter 24. We're going to read verses 14 through 28 together. God's word says this. It says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. And who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went. And among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you. And incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, I ask that your word would cut us this morning. That it would cut us the way that a surgeon cuts away the infection with a scalpel. I pray that it would cut us so that we're able to see what is in our hearts that is leading us toward death. That we might more fully lean into the life that you have offered to every one of us. I pray that, Lord, as households throughout our church family, that we would declare with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would take your word and that you would build us up and transform our minds and alter our consciences so that, Lord, they are more in alignment with who you are and what you have set before us. Oh, God, we want you, through your Holy Spirit, to bring us together to increase our joy, to transform our view, to transform our vision, to convict us of our sins, to draw us deeper into Jesus, to set our feet more pl firmly planted on the narrow path, and to pursue you wholeheartedly as you are calling Israel. Oh Lord, do it in us. Do it in us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So I think everybody kind of needs one of those shows, like especially if you have a busy mind like me where you don't have to think, right? Like you need one of those shows where after you've, you're, you've finished like all day at work, you've come home and you've taken care of the kids and you've 
kind of cleaned up the house or done whatever you do there, and you maybe, you know, like me, you're doing homework or, or whatever, and your brain is just fried and, and frazzled. You need one of those nothing shows to just kind of bring you into a happy place before bed, right? You know what I'm talking about? So for me, what this has become is House Hunters International. Now, I know, I know, John's laughing at me, and, and I'll gladly hand you my man card after the service is over. But there's something about seeing the housing markets around the world that I just find fascinating, you know? Like, I, I've kind of always wanted to live in some of these remote places, and I've come to realize that's probably not what God's call in my life is. So it's fascinating to me to see what a house costs in Singapore and in, like, Sudan and, like, all these other places and to see what it is that leads people to uproot their lives and to move to places like that. And so what I've discovered is that there is a particular plot line that is more common than all of the other plot lines, right? There's a particular plot line that is more common than all of the other plot lines. And it typically goes like this. Hi, my name is Gary. I'm a software engineer. This is my wife, Joanna. We're from Austin, Texas. Uh, we live in a Texas-sized house, about 5,000 square feet. We have a wonderful job and wonderful families, but we've just kind of reached a place in our lives in which we don't want to maintain all that anymore. We're just kind of tired of working 60, 70, 80 hours a week and all of the frantic pace of our life. And so what we're deciding, what we've decided to do is we've decided that we're going to buy a grass hut on the beach in the Dominican. And so we're going to sell all of this and we want to simplify our lives. You've seen these shows, right? Like this is the A number one plot line of House Hunters International. And I want you to think about that for a second. That the primary reason that people are uprooting their lives from here in America and moving to other places is that here they have attained all that they aim to attain. They have gotten everything that they wanted to get. They have built a life that it was exactly the way they wanted to build it. They have all the things that they want to have. They live in the house that they wanted to live in. They have the job that they hope to be able to have. They are, by every definition, a success in this world. And yet, what they say is, I'm empty. I'm tired of it. I don't like it. It's overwhelming me. I, I, I feel this need to constantly run on this hamster wheel to try to maintain all the stuff that I've built and trying to maintain all of the stuff that I built and all the stuff that I've attained and make all the payments that I have to make. It's suffocating me. And so I'm ready to simplify my life. Now what may surprise you is I think this is exactly what Joshua is getting at in Joshua chapter 24. That what Joshua is getting to here with the people of Israel is he's getting them to a, a simpler, more compact, clearer view of what their lives are supposed to be. That he's lessening their burden that they might more fully enjoy what it means to have this covenant relationship with the Lord God. In chapter 24, what we see is for the second time in Moses' life, for the fourth time in the life of Israel, God is renewing his covenant with his people. That Moses, uh, not Moses, Joshua is here at the end of the book and he's like 110 years old. I think we always have this view. I think I've mentioned this before. We always have this view of, of Moses as being the old guy and Joshua, this young, virile guy. In chapter 24, he's 110. He's on his way of stepping across the finish line. You know what I'm saying? Like he's almost there. And so his final words for the nation of Israel that he has led so faithfully is let's renew your walk with the Lord. Let's renew your relationship with the Lord. Let's renew your 
covenant with the Lord. And by renewing your covenant, let's call the vision for your life to be one that is clear, that is unmistakable, that is, that is simple, yet not easy. And so what I want us to see this morning on Mother's Day is I want us to see how it is that we can simplify our lives. How it is that we can simplify our lives. The first step that we have to take is that we have to decide what matters most. Decide what matters most. So if you look at the first 13 verses, which we didn't read this morning for time's sake, but if you looked at the first 13 verses of Joshua chapter 24, what you have is you really have Joshua rehearsing or, or restating all of the great uh, uh, victories that God has brought into the life of Israel. He talks about how God had saved Abraham and saved all of his forefathers, how God had provided for them time and again, how he had delivered them from slavery in Egypt, how he had come and crushed the walls of Jericho and delivered them from the hand of the Amorites. And he is rehearsing all of these stories that are tried and true that have proven the love and the faithfulness and the goodness of their God. And so there is a sense in which we, when we come to verses 14, 15, and 16, that what Joshua is saying is, I challenge you to try to go and find a God as good as that. I, I invite you to. I invite you to go and to search all of creation and search all of your hearts and everything that you've known and everything that you've discovered and everything that you've experienced and see if you can find a God as great as the one that delivered you from Egypt. Go back. Consider the Egyptian gods. Consider the gods that you worshipped under slavery. Consider the ones that you saw bring great prosperity to Pharaoh and his people. Are they as great as the God who delivered you from Pharaoh's hand? Are they as great as the God that divided the Red Sea and then collapse it in on Egypt's army? Maybe you want to go and consider the gods of the Amorites. They were the mightiest of all of the Canaanite people the Amorites were, and they were the most feared and to be reckoned with, and yet here is Israel living in the houses of the Amorites. In the midst of their prosperity, where the temples had been emptied, where the altars for the idols were now vacated by the people that the Lord God had squashed in his name. And so, God, so Joshua is saying, can you find a God that is as great as this one? Is it the Amorite gods? Is it the God that had brought such prosperity and strength to the Amorite people? Is it the, the ones that had allowed them to build all of these great houses and all of these great temples here in Canaan? Or is it the God that squashed them? Is it the God that gave you all that they had as a gift? And so here's what Joshua was saying. Go, search it out. Think of all of your experiences. Think of all of the other gods that you've encountered. Think of all of the other things that you've loved. And I want you to compare and decide. If they are God, then go choose them. Worship them. Bow down to them. Give all of your life to them. But if Yahweh, if the Lord is God, choose him and give your life to him. So he says, now therefore fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. And so what he is calling Israel to is out of this great background of experience and this global searching for something greater to recognize that there is no one greater than Yahweh. That the first step, if you want to understand what it means to live a simple life, is to decide what or who matters most in all of the cosmos. And Joshua is making the case, and I am making the case to you this morning, that it is the Lord God who is greater than all other that we can compare him to. All other experiences, all other treasures, all other gods, all other, all other experiences. And so he's saying, recognize this. To, to, see, to fear the Lord, you know what that means? 
To, to fear the Lord means that you recognize that it's God's approval, God's provision, God's protection that is the only reality that is essential to life. It is to recognize that in comparison to all other things and all other peoples and all other gods, that the Lord God is the only one who is worthy of all of your life, who is worthy of the devotion of your soul. And that's what he's getting at when he says serve him. The word serve can mean worship. And so he says serve or worship him with sincerity. Sincerity there, it means integrity to the covenant, to honor the, the agreement that you have entered into the Lord with. It means to, to live blameless, but the word I want you to think of is wholeness. It means to live and to offer yourself to the Lord in wholeness. That what he's saying is if you have searched all of America, if you have searched all of the cosmos, if you have searched all of your experiences, all of your wealth, all of the other treasures that have been offered, and you have recognized that the Lord God is greater than them all, that he transcends them all, that he is preeminent of gods, preeminent of treasures, preeminent of devotions, then what he is worthy of is wholehearted, whole life, singular envisioned allegiance to him. So when he's talking about fearing the Lord and worshiping the Lord, he's talking about the offer of your life. He talks about in faithfulness. The, the idea here is that of loyalty. So if we were to go, you know, and I'm, I'm going to spare you the lecture on this. Megan says I'm always like on the edge, right? Like she says, I, you don't lecture to us, but sometimes I feel like you want to. Like this is one of those times, right? Like, so if we were to look at Joshua chapter 24, and we were to look at the form of Joshua chapter 24, we would see that it resembles something that was actually quite, uh, quite common in the ancient Near East at the time of Joshua. It, it's something called a suzerain, valley, uh, suzerain vassal covenant, or a suzerain valley treaty. And what you had is you had these suzerains, and they were the overlords. They were the ones that had all of the wealth. They were the ones that had the power. They were the ones that inflicted, inflicted uh, fear in the hearts of other peoples or other nations or other tribes that might come against you. And then you had these smaller vassal states, and they were dependent very much on their alliances with these overlords, their alliances with these suzerains. And so the form of the covenant between Israel and Yahweh is this suzerain vassal form. That what you have is, is Yahweh is represented as the mighty nation. Yahweh is represented as the one who is to be feared. He is the one who provides protection. He is the one that allows safety so that now Israel can live in freedom. So that Israel doesn't have to always be looking over their shoulder. So that Israel can be certain they're always going to have what they need. So that they're always going to be defended against all of their uh, other nations and all the other threats that might try to press upon them. And so what you have in verses 1 through 13 is you have them rehearsing the faithfulness of the overlord, rehearsing the faithfulness of the suzerain in the treaty. And so what this is calling for is loyalty out of the vassal. Loyalty out of the one who cannot defend themselves. Loyalty out of the one who cannot protect themselves. Loyalty out of the one who cannot provide for themselves. He's saying, have you not seen how good your God has been? Have you not seen how, how he has provided for you and protected you and defended you? No, no, no. Be loyal. Be faithful to the covenant. Honor your alliance with him. Walk in the freedom that he has offered and give all praise, all glory, all honor, all devotion unto him. And so he's calling them to recognize what it is that is worth more than all other gods, all other things, and that is the Lord God. And at the same time, 
He's calling them to reject all competitors, to reject all competitors. See, that's the thing, isn't it? It is simple. It is a simple life if I tell you that God is worthy of everything that you have, so go ahead and give it to him. And you say, well, yeah, that's simple enough. But it's not easy, is it? It's not easy. All of you who are serious about Jesus know how difficult it is. Because you want to. You find in yourself being in agreement with me. And yet your heart is divided. Your focus is divided. Your desires are divided. You find yourself often confused. You find yourself wanting the very things that God hates and loving the very things that, that God despises. And you find yourself not loving and not wanting the very things that God loves. And so you, you find in your heart this, this inclination toward the competitors to God. Toward those things that try to compete for your affection and compete for your attention and compete for your passion. And so he, he, he brings into view those past comforts past comforts. Look at where I'm getting that from. He says that you're uh, put away the gods that your fathers served around the river and in Egypt. What does Egypt represent? Egypt represents their past, doesn't it? It represents their past. How often, as we've read through the, the Old Testament together, how often have we heard them say, Oh God, if you would just let us go back to Egypt. Oh, we should have never left Egypt. Our slavery in Egypt was better than being in relationship with you. Our slavery in Egypt, at least we knew where our meals were coming from. At least we knew where we were going to lay down at night. At least we knew where we were going to be able to raise our kids. Our slavery in Egypt was preferable. And so what Egypt is always representing and the gods of Egypt is always representing is it's representing a slavery that you're comfortable with. A slavery that you're comfortable with. A slavery that, that, that you, you almost prefer over the new frontier of what it means to follow after Christ and to give yourself wholly in allegiance to the things of God, to the pursuit of God, to go where God is sending you and to be who God is calling you to be. And you know this, that as you seek to walk the narrow path that Christ calls us to in Matthew chapter 7, what is the temptation? The temptation is as you go along the narrow path to fall into the old ruts that once were. All of those things that God has called you out of and delivered you from, when the pressures of life begin to bear down on you, it is so easy to say, oh God, that I were back in Egypt. Oh God, that I had a slavery that I'm comfortable with. And you find yourself falling and defaulting back into the abuse of alcohol because that's how you used to make yourself feel better. And you find yourself going back to the computer and indulging in pornography because that's the old slavery that you used to fall into. You, you find yourself getting back into being a workaholic again and, and beginning to self-medicate yourself with the achievement that you can pursue here in this world. Though God has called you to grace, you continue to live in the old slavery of achievement. God calls you to forsake all the treasures of this world and yet you find yourself defaulting back to that old familiar materialism that creeps around your shoulder. It's an old slavery, but it's a slavery that you're comfortable with. But if you are going to give all of your heart and all of your mind, if you are going to choose this day that the Lord is God, then you must defer, you must default, you must default to the Lord and reject all of those old familiar slaveries. But it's not just, it's not just those past comforts that tempt us. It's also new add-ons. 
It's new add-ons. Here, here, here's where I get that. So not only does he talk about the gods, and he, he's framing everything in idolatry, and anything that we prefer or prioritize over God is idolatry. But then he goes into verse 15 after talking about Egypt, and he says, And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the God of your fathers, that's the goodness of the past, served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites. The gods of the Amorites. Now the Amorites are new. They've just gotten into the land of the Amorites. They're living right now in the houses of the Amorites. But here's the temptation that Israel has. Israel is tempted to see all of the prosperity that the Amorite gods has provided to them in Canaan and say, and say, well, I'd like this too. Even though Yahweh has given it to a man, even though Yahweh has defeated them, the temptation is to see the prosperity that they have enjoyed and experienced and think, well, Maybe I can have them too. See, the temptation for Israel when it comes to idolatry is never to dismiss Yahweh and to put him away and begin to give wholesale to another God. It's always the temptation to add a God to the God that they have. It's always a temptation to try to encompass more of what they want rather than less. So if I have Yahweh, well, if I have Yahweh plus the God of the Amorites plus the God of the Egyptians, wow, think about how good, how, how good I am. Except Joshua is saying, Yahweh doesn't work that way. You've got to choose. You can't add on to him. You, you can't constantly be trying to, to contribute to the Lord. You see, adding anything to God is the polite southern way of telling God he isn't enough. Adding anything to God is the polite southern way of telling God that he isn't enough. God, yes, I want you. Yes, I want your blessing. Yes, I want your heaven. Yes, I want your eternal security. But I also must have well-rounded children. But I also must have a, a perfect marriage. But I also must have a successful career and satisfying career. I also must be the kind of athlete that I desire to be. My kids must also have to have the athletic opportunities that I think they should have. I must also have standing in the community. I must also have the address that I want. I must also drive the car that I want. I must also have all of the opportunities that I want. God, I want you, but I need to add on some things to you. And every step of the way, you are telling God, you are not satisfying enough. You are not sufficient enough. You are not good enough. I need more than what you can give to me. And I want you to listen to me right here. I want you to listen to me because so many of you are overwhelmed. I find myself right there all the time. And do you know why you're overwhelmed? Because you're trying to add all the things into your life that you think are necessary for you to be happy. You're trying to add on to God all the things that you think you have to have to have the kind of life that you need. But you can't carry the weight. You can't bear the burden. And trying to spin all of the plates of all the things that the moms on Facebook and the people at the birthday party and the people on your team and the people at school and the people at work say that you have to have in order to be happy are too much for you to bear. And so you've been trying to add on to God and add on to God and add on to God. But Joshua says, Joshua says, choose this day. Simplify your life. It is not easy, but simplify your life. That as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. How can you simplify your life? The way that you can simplify your life is to reduce it to a single question. 
Not what do my employees, employer, colleagues think of me. Not what does my W-2 say that my income level is. Not what does my 401k say about me. Not what even, even what my kids think or say about me. I can reduce my life to one question. What is it that I am to do that brings honor to the Lord? What is it that I am to do that brings honor to the Lord? That my quest is not well-rounded kids and my quest is not an ambitious career and my quest is not to have a satisfying job. My quest is not to have the right house. It's not to start in a starter home and work my way up to a retirement villa on the beach. That, that my quest is singular. It is one focus. It is in light of the fear that I have for the Lord. What is it that I can do with my life? How is it that I can make this decision? How is it that I can take the next step that will bring ultimate honor and glory to the Lord for I walk in fear and sincerity and faithfulness unto the Lord so as for me and my house we will not worry about what the other team moms think and we will not worry about what my birthday party is evaluating we will not worry about what kind of clothes all of us wear and we will not worry about what kind of job we have and we will not be artistically and academically and athletically focused as a family instead we will say as for me and my house we will serve the Lord and all of a sudden the pressure melts away doesn't it do you see it that, that you, like Israel, with their overlord, are able to walk in freedom so long as you have him. So long as you have him to provide and protect and bless. You don't have to worry about the measuring up to all the other nations and all the other peoples and all the other groups. You have the Lord. So if you want a simple life, you have to decide what matters most. And man, go for it. Decide what matters most. Reduce your life to a single question. Secondly, make sure you believe it. Decide what matters most, and then make sure that you believe it. Make sure that you actually believe it. Verse 19, but Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. So if you follow the story that we read, so Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And what do all of them say? Well, we're in. We're in, Joshua. Let us serve the Lord. Now, you would think if you were writing this story that Joshua would say, high five, guys. Let's go for cake and ice cream. We're in. Right? Like, like you actually get it. Like you're actually with me. You're going to forsake the other gods. You're going you're gonna to walk in devotion to the... Joshua doesn't, he says, well, you're not going to be able to do it. You're not going to be able to do it. You can't do it. What? What? Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. You know what Joshua's doing? He's saying, wait, 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 wait. Guys, you better make sure. You believe that the Lord is supreme over all gods. You believe that he is worthy of your life. You believe that he is worthy of the, the devotion of your soul. You believe that in this moment you're choosing to serve the Lord, to enter into covenant with him and to be loyal to him and to be devoted to him. You better make sure. You better make sure. This is not a time, the simple life is not a call to a flaky, non-committal, whenever you feel like it, commitment. This is a covenant, man. This is a covenant. 
And there are consequences when you go and break the covenant. There are consequences when you say you are devoted, when in fact you just have a moment of impulse, a moment of inspiration, a moment of, of goosebump-driven emotion that says, yeah, I'll follow Jesus. That's not what it's calling for. God is not interested in a moment of inspiration. He's interested in a life of devotion. Listen to me. Listen to me. I know, I know there may have been a time when you got goosebumps and you got emotional and you cried and you in some way ended up in the baptistry, but I'm not asking that. I'm asking, is your life devoted to the Lord? In other words, I'm asking what Joshua is asking. Are, do you really believe it? Do you really believe it with everything that you've got so that you're not flaky, so that you're not inside and outside and, and, and committed one day and not committed the other day? Of course those are experiences of sinners, even those who know Christ. But I'm asking, looking at the arc of your life, looking at the pattern of your life, looking at the trajectory of your life, do you believe that the Lord is worthy of all that you have? When I was in the first grade, the prettiest girl in my class was a girl named Jessie. I've never told you about Jessie. And maybe, maybe Mother's Day was the wrong call. <laughs> but the prettiest girl in my class was a girl named Jessie. And Jessie was my girlfriend. Right? Man, I'm writing the notes, doing the thing, telling the story. And you know what I found out about Jessie? She was everybody's girlfriend. <laughs> she was everybody's girlfriend. And I can remember vividly, vividly, getting off the school bus in the first grade, crying as I walk up that mammoth of a driveway that my parents built because Jesse had cheated on me as a first grader, right? I can remember my mom, Mother's Day, this is a shout out to mom, I can remember my mom running out and meeting me halfway down the driveway because I'm just booing. But you know, a lot of the time, we treat our relationship with God like a first grade romance. We treat our relationship with God like a first grade romance. We prostitute ourselves out to every other treasure, every other interest, every other opportunity, every other pleasure that this world can offer to us. Every old comfort, every old slavery, every new opportunity, we are constantly giving our hearts away and giving our hearts away and giving our hearts away. Yes, we say with our lips that the priority of our life and the singular most important reality of our family is Christ and Christ crucified and resurrected. But then when you actually look at how we live and what we believe, it is in fact true that we are in and out as fast as we can get out of church on Sunday. Oh, Joshua is saying, you better take account of your life. You better take account of the commitment that you were making to the Lord. Notice what he says. He says, he says first of all, you're weaker than you think you, ought to, than you think you are. You're weaker than you think you, ought, you, you are. You are not able to serve the Lord. For why? He is a holy God. He is a holy God, that the holy God is calling you to holiness, and yet you are never holy. That you are making this commitment as though you're going to be able to live up to your end of the deal, and you can't. You are incapable. In, despite what your sense of resolve is in this moment, despite of what, how inspired you feel, despite how, how emotional you are, you are not able to measure up. I think we could even say it like this. 
that the beginning of the simple life is the realization of your own weakness. The beginning of the simple life is the realization of your own weakness. To realize that you can't measure up. You can't do what you're supposed to do. For Israel to live in a relationship with a holy God, they would literally have to renew the covenant every day. They were not able. So they're always adding on. Always trying to to do more and be better. My goodness, doesn't that sound like us? See, the call to a simple life, the call to singularly live in allegiance to God, to walk in the fear of the Lord and to serve the Lord, to choose Him over every other treasure and every other pleasure, is a call away from mom guilt. It's a call away from feeling the pressure to make sure your kids have all the opportunities of the other kids. It's a call away from feeling like you always have to have a perfect house. It's a call away from feeling like it's your responsibility to have a perfect marriage. It's a call into the daily provision of grace that is afforded by the kindness of God. Israel was not able. Israel was too weak. Israel was not holy. They could not bear that weight. And so there is a call here by Joshua to look not within to your own inner resolve, not in to your own strength, not in to your own ability to bear the weight of the world on your shoulders as the mom of your house or as the dad of your house or as the patriarch or matriarch of your family, but instead to look out and look up and say, where is the Lord? Where is the Lord? But but it's not just uh, to recognize that you're too weak, it's to recognize that it's too hard. I want you to think about what it means that God is jealous. What it means that God is jealous is it means that he's unwilling to share you with anything or anyone else. He's unwilling. There is nothing, nothing, nothing that is worthy of your love the way that the Lord is. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, let the dead bury the dead. You come and follow me. And you are to hate your mother and hate your father that you might love me. What is he saying? That your love for me is to be so radical, so extreme, so devout, so sold out that in comparison, all the other loves are so far less that they look and appear as though they are hatred in comparison. That, that I am a jealous God. I'm not willing to share you with the gods of Egypt. I'm not willing to share you with the gods of Amorites. I'm not willing to share you with the pleasures of this world. I want all of you, everything that you have, not with an add-on, not with all this other stuff. I want you and I want you in total, in sum, all of who you are. You see, if you are to walk in devotion to the Lord, you're gonna have to do without some things. There's a call here to count the cost by Joshua. Jesus says, if you would go after me, you must stop and count the cost. Who goes and builds a a great palace without first counting the costs? If you want to be serious about the Lord, you won't have the same lifestyle your neighbors have. You can't. You won't have the same cars that they have necessarily, the same house they have necessarily. Your kids won't, won't go to all the same places that their kids go to. Your career shape is going to look different. Your marriage priorities are going to look different. You can't have everything. But you know what? You've already chosen not to have some things. You've already chosen. As a matter of fact, our lives are the result as much of what we choose not to have as they are to choose what we do have. We make the decisions of what we do. We do. Your coach, your kid's coach doesn't. Your, your kid's teacher doesn't. Your boss doesn't. 
You do. You are answerable for your life, not them. And so if gathering around the dinner table is something that you want, you either have to prioritize it or choose not to have it. If, if, if a devotion life, and look, I'm not pre, I, am, I am preaching to Cody Hale here, okay? I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, this is not me up on a platform pointing down. It's the, really, it's the reality of the situation, brothers and sisters, that we have to choose what we're going to have and what we're going to not have. And if we are going to prioritize ball over Christ, we're going to make that choice. If we're going to prioritize work over family, we're going to make that choice. If we're going to prioritize leisure over intimacy with Christ, we're going to make that choice. That the choice that, Paul, that Joshua is calling them to make and that Christ is calling for us to make is to decide what we want and what we're willing to live without. But we cannot pretend as though Christ is the center of our lives when Christ is the choice that we make to exclude week in, week out, day in, day out. Now Jesus says that anyone who would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That if anyone would recognize that they are not holy enough and that they are not strong enough, if they would recognize that Christ is the central priority of life, that he is worthy of everything, and that they would really believe it and they would give everything that they have to it, then, then you know what happens? Christ gives to you his holiness. Christ gives to you his strength. He makes up for the inadequacy, the hopeless inadequacy and insufficiency that we all have. Which brings me to the last point. Make sure you believe it and then live like you believe it. Make sure you believe it and then live like you believe it. They, they again, they respond to, to Joshua and they say, yes, Joshua, yes, we are in. Yes, Joshua, we, we will obey the Lord. We will serve the Lord. As for us in our houses, we too are committed unto the Lord. We are committed to the simple, singularly focused life that you have called us to. And Joshua stops and he says, well, it's time to take action then. It's time for you to actually live like it. It's time for you to go all in. He says it this way. He said, then put away action, the foreign gods that are among you, and incline your heart, action, to the Lord, the God of Israel. Put away those idols then. Leave them alone. Slay them. Destroy them. Eliminate them. Oh, give. Give your heart. Give your heart entirely unto the Lord. You know, it's, it's ironic the way that he puts this language because most commentators are in agreement that by this point, they have no actual idols in their hands. You remember back in chapter five when we had the story of Achan, right? Achan had those idols and he buried them and put them under his tent and God brought, brought judgment upon Israel as they went into the battle of Ai because of the idols in their tent. And so it, it seems to cl be clear that when they buried the idols on the far side of the Jordan that there were none of them left that none of them were actually contained wooden idols buried under their floor like Achan did. But Joshua seems to identify that even though they had thrown away the idols, the idols were still in their hearts. That their hearts were still inclined toward these false gods. That their hearts were still inclined toward the treasures of America when Christ was calling them to live for heaven. Their hearts were still there. They had left Egypt. They had thrown away the gods of Egypt, but they were still thirsty for Egypt. They had defeated the Amorites and crushed the Amorites, but they were still thirsty for the prosperity that the Amorite gods could promise. Paul, in Romans chapter 8, verse, verses 5 and 6, he calls this the flesh. 
And he says to set your mind on the things of the flesh, the the things that the body craves, the things that you thirst for, is death. That is, we can say that they were thirsty for death. And y'all, I don't know about you, but in my life, I find it true that I often thirst for death. God has called me out of materialism, and yet I fix a kitchen and want to then renovate a bathroom. It's never enough. Yeah, I get one truck, and then all I can think about is the fact that Andrew always points out my truck doesn't have cup holders. And I want another one. And as funny as it is, and as silly as it is, you know what it is? It's thirsting for death. Christ has delivered me from a life of pursuit of achievement and success here. And yet I find myself constantly measuring to see whether or not I consider myself a success. It's thirsting for death. But here's the call. The Bible often teaches through geography. The Bible often teaches through geography. Chapter 24, verse 1, the beginning of this, he says what? Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel where? In Shechem. I want you to hold that in your mind. He gathered them in Shechem, all right? Here's a a picture. This is in Shechem, all right? And it talks about an altar that Abraham, or an altar that they built in a stone. This is a picture of a Canaanite altar in Shechem. So he calls them to Shechem. But this is not the first time that Shechem has appeared in the Bible. Shechem first appears in Genesis chapter 12. Do you remember what happens in Genesis chapter 12? God has just entered into a covenant with Abraham and he takes him into the promised land. He has called him out of following the pagan gods of his fathers and he takes him into the, up onto the Mount of Shechem, into the land of Canaan and he says, look beyond the river, look as far as you can see, all of the pagan country that you see, that is going to be the country of your descendants. That is where your people will worship me and what does Abraham do? He builds something just like this, an altar unto the Lord and right there in the middle of pagan country, right there in the middle of a world that despises the Lord, that does not know the Lord, that does not love the Lord, Abraham builds an altar and he offers himself up as worship, wholly devoted unto the Lord, that he and all of his, devo- his, uh, uh, his, uh, and his uh, ancestors will follow the Lord and be committed to the Lord. Then it comes up again. Genesis chapter 35, Jacob is about to enter into the promised land and he's taking a huge uh, parade of people into the promised land with him and he takes them and he takes them up to Shechem. And do you know what he tells them to do at Shechem? He says, take and bury your idols. Bury your idols before we go into the land of the Lord. And he offers a worship up into the Lord God alone. In other words, Jacob was saying what Abraham had promised so long ago. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so here is Joshua. Joshua talking out among all of Israel before he steps out into eternity. And he's looking at them and he's saying, look, the idols that are in your hearts, the idols that you find yourself being devoted to, the treasures that are catching your eye, the thirst for death that you have here at Shechem where Abraham, our father, raised up his hands and worshiped in the land of pagans where Jacob went and buried all of his idols. Take the idols that are in your heart and let them die here. Let them die here. I wonder this morning, how many mamas and how many daddies, how many grandmamas and how many granddaddies would say what Joshua had said, what Jacob said, what Abraham said, as for me and for my house, We will serve the Lord. And I wonder, I wonder, would you be willing to come to the altar, an altar emblematic of what Abraham had, emblematic of what Jacob had, emblematic of what Joshua understood, and bury your idols 
right here and right now. Because you see, that's the simple life. That's the simple life. To crucify all of the complexities that come with this world. That you may live singularly focused on Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. We would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.